0: Hello and welcome to the Steve Barkley Ponders Out Loud podcast. Instructional coaches and leaders create the environment that supports teachers to continually imagine, grow, and achieve. They model an excitement for learning that teachers in turn model for students. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the important aspects of instructional leadership. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled you're here. Encouraging teachers to teach with big concepts. Joining the podcast today is Dr. Stephanie Sisk-Hilton, who is a professor in the Department of Elementary Education at San Francisco State University. Her teaching and her research focus on the intersections of children's science learning, cognition and development, and collaborative teacher learning. I was introduced to Dr. Sisk-Hilton's work through an article in Education Week that described a program her university is offering that leads to a climate justice education certificate. As I explored her work and her interest further, I was anxious to ask her to join me on the podcast. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Steve. Glad you're with us.
1: Thanks so much.
0: I'm wondering, for starters, if you'd talk a little bit about your teaching background and and your interest in teaching science?
1: Sure. So I started my career as an elementary teacher a long time ago now. Um, I was a science resource teacher in an elementary school and then a multiple subject, everything elementary teacher. I've also been um, a middle school math and science teacher. I've worked as an instructional coach, was very briefly a principal, um, and then for the past 18 years have been primarily um, a college professor. But especially during my years, primarily as a classroom teacher, I was really lucky to work in several different schools that used project-based learning in different forms, in different ways. And I think that that has really grounded my approach to teaching and learning. So now my main job is helping new teachers particularly in science education, but also uh, working on teacher research as a way to engage in reflective practice and uh, watching them build their confidence in teaching science, something that they're often, they often don't come in confident in is one of the most satisfying parts of my job.
0: So I started my career a whole lot earlier than you on the, on the years here. And, uh, that science issue existed then. I mean, I was an elementary teacher and, uh, and it was pretty quick to discover that uh, very few of us with elementary credentials had the background to, uh, to to work in the in science content.
1: Absolutely, and you know, most often, I actually do have something of a science background, but uh, most often, folks who become elementary teachers they they weren't science majors, right? They're supposed to teach. 12 different subjects. And, you know, science is just one of them, and it may not have any space. And in fact, one of the reasons I I became really passionate about teaching science and teaching teachers science education is that the more I taught, the more I began to really see it as a justice issue. If you think about who gets access to science, especially early in their schooling and who doesn't, very often it's kids who are going to school in predominantly lower income communities where science simply isn't taught. And yet if you go to higher income, more resourced communities, science is a given. And so then we wonder by the time kids get up to middle school and high school and college why we don't have enough scientists. Well, that's one of the reasons we we block a lot of our kids um, from even developing that interest. So that's something that I, that I really care about and have kind of centered in my career.
0: Well, it sounds like you've, uh, you, you've hit on giving us uh, at least a piece of the explanation of what the uh, Climate Justice Education Certificate is. You want to spell that out a little more?
1: Yeah, sure. So my colleagues and I at San Francisco State, are we're still in the development phases of this. We're hoping to launch next summer. But uh, how we got to this is we know that most teachers and most parents, really over 80%, think that climate science should be taught in schools. So sometimes we act like this is a big controversy. It, it's not that big of a controversy. Most, most people really think it should be happening. But simultaneously, we know that fewer than half of teachers report doing it, report teaching for climate science. Um, And some of that is, of course, we have teachers who teach all different subjects. So they feel like it's important, but they aren't really sure how to do it. And they're not really sure if it's their job to do it, right? Like if you're a high school earth science teacher, yeah, of course. Um, But if you're an art teacher, you know, should you be teaching for climate justice? You know, if you're a kindergarten teacher, should you be doing this? And I guess my colleagues and I think yes, yes, it needs to. It needs to underlie. It maybe isn't the main thing that every teacher teaches, but that it needs to be a systemic goal. That it's one of the biggest issues facing our society, our world right now, and that it really needs to underlie what we're doing in schools. And so we're developing a program that is intentionally multidisciplinary. We're not planning to separate the elementary teachers from the high school teachers. It's planning to be, it's going to be open to all educators, both formal and informal. And the idea is to foreground issues of climate science through a community justice lens. So helping teachers understand what the climate-based issues are in their communities and engaging in what we call a pedagogy of hope to help them think about how they might bring these issues to kids in ways that build them up and help them feel powerful um, as agents of change rather than terrifying everybody. So you know, we're, aiming, we're aiming at systems-level change, um, hopefully moving away from just you know taking the most enthusiastic teachers and helping them be even more magnificent than they are and more towards you know how do we use a program like this for teachers to be leaders in their schools towards whole systems change
0: as i look through your stuff i i found a uh, i found a mention that I, th- this sentence i'd like you to just spell it out a little bit more the words you used were disaster pedagogy isn't helpful T- tell us about that
1: yeah so you know Climate change is terrifying, right? The, the the impacts that are already happening, the things that are going to be happening in the future. And so it's scary and it's easy to feel powerless. And it's especially easy to feel powerless when we frame the issue in terms of individual action. So, you know, I can drive an electric car, I can eat a vegan diet, I can just never turn on the heat in my house, And guess what? We're going to statistically be like no closer to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I'm just going to be hungry, right? So it's really easy to kind of throw up our hands and say, well, what, what can I do? And part of the problem is that we frame this in terms of individuals all need to change and they all need to change on their own. And there's a couple of problems with that. And the first is that when we're scared, we feel powerless. And the parts of our brains that think and innovate and problem-solve, they literally shut down. I can't remember when I first read the term amygdala hijack, but it I use it a lot because that's exactly what happens, right? The, the oldest, most primitive part of our brain, which keeps us alive when we're scared, that's what takes over. And our logical response is flee. Right, so you know, if, if the world is just you know, forget it. There's nothing we can do. You know, my my diet's not going to make a difference. Whatever, I'm just going to run away because that's what keeps me safe. And I think we sometimes unintentionally do that in our attempts to teach about climate science. That when we focus on what's terrifying, we're not actually inviting folks to engage. Um, so if we want to help kids. Build their knowledge base and grow up into leaders who can actually work on these problems and address them. We can't do it from this place of catastrophe and fear, even if that's what I may be feeling some of the time when I'm teaching this. So, what we're trying to do is reframe the approach. And there's a couple of things in that. One is to move away from this focus on individual action, because honestly, Individual actions, not what's going to make a real difference, and move towards community based solutions. So, to go back to my eating, you know, like me adopting a more sustainable diet by myself doesn't do very much. But if we develop a whole network of community gardens and farmers markets that provide fresh local produce to communities that previously were in food deserts you know, that's doing something. That's doing something that has a meaningful impact on climate change and it humanizes, it makes our our communities more livable. It has a direct impact on on well-being and it feels powerful. When you look at kids who, who are involved in things like community garden projects, they feel like they're doing something important and it's something that they can do as opposed to like telling their families what, Groceries to buy, which very often is based on you know economic need, not on not on climate sustainability. So that's one is move away from the individual toward a to more systems focus. And then the kind of second part of that is to really focus climate education on this idea of hope-filled action, not just learning about all that's wrong, but what can we do? What can we do in community? Even little kids, what what can kids do? How can they advocate for change? How can they actually be a part of change so that we feel like we're engaging in meaningful action um, and not just learning about all that's that's wrong in the world?
0: Powerful makes it makes it makes a ton of sense. I know that you're interested in encouraging educators to move away from a, a misconception that students have to do all the basics before they can deal with the uh, the bi- the big ideas and certainly you're talking big idea here. So would you talk about the, the impact that that has on learning?
1: Yeah. So, so my, my poor college students, they get so tired of me talking about this because this is one of the things that I, that I really care about and I've spent a, a long time studying. But So for generations of educators, we're basically taught that little kids aren't capable of understanding big abstract ideas. And we've actually known for a really long time that that's not true. Um, we have lots of counter evidence, but a lot of our education system is kind of grounded in this belief. And so, oftentimes, when we look at what's taught, particularly in science, to younger children, even up through like middle school, sometimes even high school, we tend to see this kind of little pieces approach. This idea that we're going to we're going to teach this little piece and this little piece and this little piece, and then when kids are older and more advanced, they're going to somehow put it all together. But that doesn't really—that doesn't happen. And what happens is, is people just like check out a science. They're like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm done with all these little pieces," and they never get to that part, right? And and we know that that's fundamentally not how the brain works. That our brain is is constantly making connections, and that we, when we aren't able to connect a new piece of information, we just we forget it. So, if we're learning individual facts about like basic types of soil. Um, but we don't have any experience with soil, we're just like looking at it in a a classroom, we're going to forget that. But if we learn about it in the context of growing food that we're going to eat and we see the impact of that on the plants that we grow, then it matters and we remember it. So it's not, I think sometimes we think of systems thinking as this really complex thing that can only happen, you know, like with a, fully developed adult brain, but it's it's not. It's this, it's as simple as understanding a, a garden, which is not a simple system at all, actually, but kids can garden, right? And I, I will say that the current iteration of our academic standards, particularly the next generation science standards, are really based in a more systems-oriented approach. But I think as educators, we we just need lots of really strong examples of what that looks like, because we're just, it's not the way most of us learned. It's not the way most of us um experience science. And so to ask us to do something totally different can can be a little bit of a lift. I also I go back again and again to the garden example just because I feel like that's one where teachers are like, yeah, of course, of course. Like preschoolers can can be in a garden. High schoolers can be in a garden. It's kind of, it's kind of accessible. Um, to everybody, and yet it's this great laboratory for looking at how you know living and non-living things interact, and how you know the role insects play. It's a, it's a system, and it's the basis of our food system, which is incredibly important to humans, and it's incredibly important to um, addressing climate change. Like a third, I think it's a third of our greenhouse gas emissions um, are attributable to some point in the in the food system. So it's it's related to climate change and it's related to to human well being and kids can you know watch a bee going to a plant and learn about what it's doing and think about you know what would it be like if there aren't bees we have a critical issue with pollinators right now bees pollinate some huge percentage of food crops in the U S. and yet we have an ever decreasing bee population and so thinking about how do we make more bee friendly environments how do we um, how do we create systems that support our pollinators? That's something that young kids can do. It's something that old kid, older kids can understand at a, at a you know, greater level of detail. But this understanding of systems, I think, really needs to underlie all of the science teaching we do and that it's not something that has to wait for, wait for later.
0: So many of our listeners are... Uh teacher leaders and instructional coaches and school administrators. What kind of conversations do you suggest or approaches they use to uh, assist teachers in exploring the concept of big concepts? Because often our curriculum doesn't come to us like that.
1: Right. Yeah. It's a a great question because in my experience, teachers are excited to do this kind of work. They love seeing examples of it in action, but often – I think we get scared either that we don't know enough or that doing this is just going to make people angry, we're going to be in trouble, or that we'll do it in some sort of wrong way that, that damages kids. So I think good coaching can really play a huge role in, in bringing this to life. And I think in many cases, it, it looks like helping teachers see what they're already doing, that they could tweak and adjust and change to make it more about climate science, to make it more about issues of justice, to make it more about understanding um, a system. So I I can give an example. Um, We'll keep going with the plant and garden example. A few years ago, I was co-teaching with a first grade teacher who was fairly new, and she was really excited to uh, have caterpillars in her classroom. And watch them grow into butterflies, you know, a classic kindergarten, first grade kind of activity. And at the same time, I was working with the school to think about really integrating issues of environment and climate um, across the curriculum. So we used this as an opportunity to really to think about this. So she was super excited, and was already planning to do this, this butterfly unit. And so what I helped her do was really think about, okay, why do we why do we want kids to know about butterflies, right? (laughs) Like it's, it's fascinating to watch them metamorphosize and yet caterpillar to butterfly metamorphosis, you know, maybe not the most important scientific concept. So what is, you know, what, what is, what's the thing that really matters here? Well, butterflies are really important pollinators. And where, where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have monarch butterflies who come through. We have swallowtail butterflies. We have all different... There's not just one kind of butterfly, right? And they, they pollinate very specific kinds of plants. And they need uh, different plants at the caterpillar stage um, versus at the adult butterfly stage. So she used this project that she had already had done before and was already planning to do and kind of expanded it out to think not just about the butterflies that come in the mail order kit that they were going to grow, but like what butterflies lived around the school and and what do they need to live? And this was in an urban area. You know, do we have a butterfly friendly habitat around our school or is it just, you know, concrete and and non-native plants that these butterflies don't even, you know, don't, don't help them survive? And so what her students ended up doing was they studied the while they were watching these caterpillars, you know, it's kind of a long wait. Um, So they were also studying, you know, what butterflies live in our area, what plants do they um, live. And then they got, I think there was a donation, maybe from a, from a parent or from a plant nursery, but they ended up planting native plants in an area, in a little area between the school gate and the sidewalk. There was this little patch of dirt, and they planted native plants there. And they made signs that we laminated so they could get rained on that explained um, how the butterflies pollinated these plants. So it was a really first grade friendly project, but it moved it from let's just look at the life cycle of a butterfly to let's think about how butterflies fit in a system. So I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, a coach can really help a teacher think through it. And instead of starting with something they've never thought of doing before, start with the thing that they love um, and that they're excited about and grow it out.
0: Cool. Cool. Uh, I know that you're working on a a book right now about uh, teaching uh, climate change. Um, Just tell folks a little bit about where that's headed.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's a book specifically um, aimed at elementary school teachers for the reasons we've already talked about that oftentimes elementary teachers, um, you know, aren't by training science specialists and they wanted, they want to engage in this work, but they're not always really sure how. So I'm hoping that the book both provides some of the climate science content, but also provides lots of examples of how you might bring this to life in elementary school. And honestly, I don't really think that elementary school is the place where we need to be drilling in on the exact details of, you know, global climate systems and exactly how um, how humans are impacting the climate uh, with greenhouse gas emissions. But instead, if if we really focus elementary school on understanding systems and interactions and on understanding our role in communities, um, I think we are setting kids up to then. At, it's, it's it's kind of the opposite of little pieces first, right? Start with the big picture and then um, they're in a good position to add in the details later. So I'm using a three part framework that's going to sound repetitive based on what we're talking about. Um, so the first piece is understanding the earth as a set of interdependent systems. The second is grounding elementary science in place-based learning, really learning about your own community and where you live and your place in it. Um, it's absolutely great to learn about the Amazon rainforest and to learn about you know many other places in the world. And I think we need to ground the learning in kids' own place, both because they can directly experience it and also because that's where they can feel the ability to engage in action. So then the third pillar of this framework is engaging in hope-filled action, like learning about something and then doing something with that so that we build this understanding from the earliest ages that we can use science knowledge um, to improve our communities.
0: I love it. Love it. You got a uh, projected uh, timeline when the book will be out?
1: It should be out in the early fall. My manuscript is due to the publishers at the end of the spring, and it usually takes a couple months to get it from manuscript to published book, So that's the hope.
0: We will be on the lookout. Uh, Well, Stephanie, I really, really appreciated the conversation with you. I'm wondering if you'd share with uh, with listeners the uh, best way that they might uh, follow up with you with some questions or take a look at some of the writing that you've done.
1: Sure. I have a really old website that I'm hoping to get back up and running, but it's not yet. So I think the, the best way to get hold of me is just through email, which is S H. so S-T-E-P-H-S-H, at sfsu.edu. And I should warn you, I'm, I'm on sabbatical this semester, so anyone who contacts me is going to get my little sabbatical auto-response, but I do I do check email from time to Just time. Just
0: wait, because I got that, too, and then I got your note. So yeah. um, we'll, we'll be sure to post that, uh, that email in the lead-in and make it easier for folks to find. Thank you so much.
1: Great. Thanks, Steve.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Steve Barkley Ponders Out Loud on iTunes and Podbean. And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. I also want to hear what you're pondering. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Barkley or send me your questions and find my videos and blogs at BarkleyPD.com.